following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing September 18th, 2020. Was Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny poisoned by the Russian state? How will this incident impact the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline now that Germans are making the accusation? Does the revolutionary activity emerging from Belarus indicate another Ukraine-style coup d'etat could emerge? What does increasing NATO activity mean for Russia's immediate future? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we will showcase recent developments in and around Russia and try to determine if this major power is being put on the defensive as events heat up. We first speak with journalist John Helmer about the apparent poisoning of Navalny and whether it is the Russians or the Germans who have some explaining to do. In our second half hour, we are joined by Stefan Goich, who explores a possible colored revolution in Belarus and the significance of increasing NATO activities in the Russian region. On this week's program, Cold War Thaw, Navalny poisoning, Belarusian instability, and NATO on Russia's doorstep. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabeg Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. COVID-19 is much less severe than the average annual flu and current draconian restrictions are no longer justified, according to a senior health service executive doctor. People at low risk from the virus should be exposed to it so they can develop herd immunity and reduce the risk to vulnerable groups, according to Dr. Martin Feely, clinical director of the Dublin Midlands Hospital Group. This is what is happening, and yet the policy seems to be to prevent it, he says. This should have been allowed to happen during the summer months before the annual flu season to reduce the workload on health service during winter months. Any assessment of Ireland's strategy to combat the virus should take into account the cost to people's quality of life, according to the former vascular surgeon who points out that, quote, you can't postpone youth, unquote. That comes from the article, Ireland Draconian Restrictions Around COVID-19 Condemned by Health Service Executive Doctor, by Paul Cullen, posted September 17th, originally published at the Irish Times. We call on politicians to be independently and critically informed in the decision-making process and 
in the compulsory implementation of corona measures. We ask for an open debate where all experts are represented without any form of censorship. After the initial panic surrounding COVID-19, the objective facts now show a completely different picture. There is no medical justification for any emergency policy anymore. The current crisis management has become totally disproportionate and causes more damage than it does any good. We call for an end to all measures and ask for an immediate restoration of our normal democratic governance and legal structures and of all our civil liberties. That comes from the article, Open Letter from Medical Doctors and Health Professionals to All Belgian Authorities and All Belgian Media. Posted September 17th, originally published at Docs for Open Debate. Globally, we are seeing a massive campaign of disinformation on the mainstream media that sets aside all the principles of a democratic state governed by the rule of law. While a great number of colleagues, doctors present with different views, unprecedented censorship prevents them from making the news. Information from different thinking experts and professionals can currently be found almost exclusively through targeted searches on the internet or alternative news sources, but not in the mainstream media. In the Netherlands, doctors have come together and drafted an open letter addressed to colleagues and the government pleading for proportional measures. This letter aims to stimulate an open and frank debate on how to tackle the COVID-19 outbreak and was signed by more than 800 doctors. That comes from the article, A huge number of medical doctors ask for a reassessment of the corona measures. Posted September 17th, originally published at Docs for Open Debate. Mike Yaden, Pfizer former chief scientific advisor. Ferguson's model has no validity in the view of most scientists. Quote, yes, it's a novel virus, but it's very closely related to at least four other viruses that circulate freely in the population, which are all coronaviruses and contribute to the common cold. So bluntly, it was naive of them, the government, etc., to assume everyone was susceptible. Four or five scientific papers have since come out that suggest that between 30 and 50% of people have T-cell immunity cross reacting from having been exposed to these other common cold-inducing coronaviruses, unquote. Most scientists don't accept that Ferguson's model was even faintly right. The NHS will maintain COVID stance allegedly to deal with the second wave. That comes from the article, Video, COVID-19, the pandemic is over. A novel virus closely related to coronaviruses which contribute to the common cold by Dr. Mike Yaden and Julia Hartley Brewer. Posted September 14th, originally heard on the Wikimedia Commons. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
Alexei Navalny, a Russian citizen and opposition leader to President Vladimir Putin, made international headlines as the apparent victim of Novichok poisoning while on his flight to Moscow. The man has since recovered from his hospital in Berlin. This incident largely revolves around the German government who came up with the diagnosis but won't supply the details of the finding. This begs the question as to whether it's even plausible. To tell us more, we got hold of a journalist residing in Moscow. John Helmer is the longest continuously serving foreign correspondent in Russia and the only Western journalist to direct his own bureau independent of single national or commercial ties. He was born and educated in Australia, then at Harvard University. Helmer has also been a professor of political science, of sociology, and of journalism, and an advisor to government heads in Greece, the United States, and Asia. The Global Research News Hour got him to elaborate on what the available evidence said to him. First of all, let's be clear Alexei Navalny was poisoned. But that's poisoning um, in its broadest sense. Uh, we also, we, if he'd eaten oysters, we might term the crisis food poisoning. Um, we might uh, also speak of a poisoning of the system if he had a diabetic a crisis attack, if he had a Quinks disease crisis or if he'd had anaphylactic shock. All three things, diabetes, Quink's disease, and anaphylactic shock are poisonings Alexei Navalny has suffered from in the past, but his family has withheld that information and that medical uh, background and forbidden doctors in Omsk uh, and in Berlin from revealing it for privacy reasons. Well, we all know that privacy reasons do count to uh, limit the extent to which an individual's personal health background uh, can be revealed. But in this particular case, because a particular type of poisoning and a particular class of culprits has been, have been identified, targeted, and, and publicly alleged against Russia, against the Russian state, against the Kremlin, against the president of Russia, then... Um, it becomes suspicious and improper for the family to withhold Alexei Navalny's previous medical conditions. Uh, what happened, we know uh, from the Omsk hospital uh, pathological tests, which have been published, uh, and which have been stamped and signed by an individual doctor. What we know is that uh, uh, Alexei Navalny, on arrival in Omsk, on the way between Tomsk in southeastern Siberia and Moscow, uh, was uh, had a bloodstream full of uh, a very unpleasant mixture of antidepressant drugs, other drugs, uh, and so forth, which may, if we knew his prior medical condition, have triggered a collapse. We also know that the Omsk hospital team acted quickly they suspected a poisoning, but they did not know what type of poisoning. They dealt with it, and they uh, are owed Alexei Navalny's thanks for saving his life, if his life was at risk from any one of these possible sources of poisoning. The question then becomes, uh, why did his family insist on his going to Berlin? Why did his spokesman 
Ms. Yamish, announced there'd been a criminal poisoning act, not a metabolic poisoning act, uh, so quickly. How did she know? And uh, what has been the German response? Well, the quick answer to that is that uh, the Russian government uh, provided all the data, plus Navalny himself, um, permission to leave well, as soon as his condition had stabilized. On August 22, so roughly 48 hours after the collapse, he went to Berlin to the Charité Clinic in Berlin. Charité Clinic doesn't has a record of making political cures very fast. Uh, when the former prime minister of um, uh, Ukraine was released from prison, she had a miraculous cure when moved to Berlin and then went shopping very quickly thereafter. Uh, it's not the clinic, but the politics of the clinic that began to weigh because under Russian, European, Canadian and other protocols for patient treatment, uh, a doctor or the doctor of a treating team must sign a public release of his medical condition report. In this particular, in the German case, a PR lady for the hospital made an announcement which carried an interpretation that the poisoning had been by uh, a source of uh, ACE or cholinesterase uh, inhib inhibitor uh, substances, which hadn't been identified. So That's an interpretation. The German hospital did not announce any medical diagnosis and still has not. Instead, it did press releases which had carried an interpretation of a substance not identified by the Berlin Hospital. Subsequently, the German government spokesman, another PR man, announced that the evidence had been sent to the German Army's Chemical Warfare Laboratory in Munich, which also issued a result a report, but that too has not been signed, identified with an official, identified even by the laboratory's name. Instead, more press releases and leaks to the press claiming that the uh, Munich laboratory had identified a Novichok type drug or a Novichok class of nerve agent. Since none of these announcements amounted to medical evidence of a crime, but the allegations were made by the German foreign minister principally, we come back to him, that German political uh, hook to this story. Um, the Russians have repeatedly requested at uh, the prosecutor general level, that's the prosecutor of crime in Russia, has requested the Berlin and German prosecutor general to provide the evidence of a crime. None has been provided. The uh, Munich lab uh, results were said to have been uh, duplicated when the German side uh, sent samples of Navalny's blood, urine, and other evidence to uh, a chemical warfare, military chemical warfare lab, lab in Sweden and one in France, and also requested that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, send a team to Berlin to sample for themselves. These procedures were then announced on Monday of this week by uh, Stefan Siebert, uh, the government PR man, 
to have confirmed the evidence the Germans had provided. Okay, uh, that's the claim. It's a PR claim. It's not a medical claim. It's not a toxicological claim. It's not a forensic claim. It's completely inadmissible in any court of law in Europe, England, or Canada, or the United States. It's a political statement. Uh, this then means that uh, somebody in the German government is accusing Russia of, of a crime, and they're insisting that Russia should explain it and, and analyze and act transparently in the prosecution of who did it. To which the Russians have said, fine, send us the evidence. You think there's evidence of crime. We have interviewed every witness who was associated with Navalny the night before the flight, uh, the two hours at the airport before the flight, uh, at the flight itself, the evacuation from the aircraft and the time in hospital. Not one of them saw him drinking uh, from the bottle, which suddenly showed up in Berlin as a source of evidence, and then in Munich as a source of evidence, and then in France and Sweden as a source of evidence. The mysterious blue bottle. Read all about it in the piece pieces I've, I've published. Second, there's a mysterious witness. Five of Navalny's staff who spent the evening with him lived at the hotel with him in Tom, who uh, flew on the who were at the airport with him when he had his uh, cup of tea and when he was on the plane. Five staff uh, were interviewed by the Russian police, by the prosecutor's offices and so forth and so on. Uh, but the sixth didn't. She drove or fled from Tomsk by car to Novosibirsk. That's quite a long way. Then she shows she didn't take the plane with uh, Navalny uh, the plane which from Tomsk to Moscow, which was diverted to Omsk, but she did fly to Omsk. This is a person called Maria Pevchik. Come back to her in a minute. She's the sixth witness who deliberately avoided being interviewed by the Russian authorities. So one can't blame them for not interviewing her. If she's the source of, of witness evidence about a crime, she ran away from the Tomsk, then Omsk, she was on the plane that carried uh, Navalny uh, from uh, Omsk to Berlin. I published pictures of her getting out of the ambulance along with uh, Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia, Yulia Navalnaya. She was then in Berlin for a while, and then she fled Berlin and is back in the UK where she started. I'll come back to her background in the UK at the moment. But yesterday, because of the publishing of evidence about Maria Pevchik and who she really works for, that's opposition groups, Russian regime change groups, and bags of money in London, she's a material witness to an alleged crime, but she's run away. Now, um, the German PR man for the government, Stefan Siebert, was asked explicitly, explicitly yesterday, what does he know about Maria Pevchik as a witness to the crime Siebert keeps saying is alleged by Germany? He said he knew nothing about her. That's a lie. Details revealed that the German foreign minister Heiko Maas was largely to blame for placing Russia as public enemy number one in the dispute over Navalny's illness. This put him apparently at odds with his own chancellor, 
Angela Merkel, who was desperately interested in protecting the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline between Russia and Germany. I asked Helmer to comment, if he could, on how the two German politicians could continue playing their role, given evident contradictions. Heiko Maas uh, is leading the anti-Russian faction in the German government. He's a member of the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, which is on its way to political oblivion. He's part of a coalition that reflected a, an election that was uh, that gave uh, the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union Party, led by uh, Chancellor Merkel, part with a coalition of the SPD. Since that election, the SPD has steadily lost votes and facing election next year, when Merkel will be replaced by another candidate from the CDU, the SPD faces oblivion. It will be replaced by some coalition with the CDU, if the CDU doesn't have a majority, of the Greens, and maybe one of the Greens and the CDU will eliminate the SPD. Okay, so Maas is on his way to oblivion. He needs desperately to hang on to the rights, privileges, and political platform that he presently has, because he's running out of time. He's representing an anti-Russian platform, and in particular, the accusatory prosecution position in Germany on the Navalny case, to boost his polls and to preserve his political standing. To that end, he's done a bunch of things, which Merkel, who usually exercises strategic foreign policy direction in Germany, has allowed to happen and has so far not corrected. So uh, um, the next election, uh, could you see a, a different uh, formation of parties changing the decision on, uh, on building Nord Stream 2? Um, I, look, uh, Germans running for office, the succession to Merkel within the CDU party have included uh, Ms. Kramp-Karabakh, who's currently defense minister. She's also running an, uh, an anti-Russian line, but has been ousted from election, uh, the election leadership, the CDU, and some other members of the uh, German parliament who are also trying to boost their chances in the uh, post-Merkel succession stage are running anti-Russian line. Mrs. Merkel, on the other hand, is trying to do as little as possible to change the status quo. There's a very strong business support. There's a very strong popular support in uh, Berlin and in Germany for preserving the status quo and not turning Russia into a fresh kind of enemy, the way the British, the way uh, Boris Johnson made his prime ministerial run during the Skripal case, okay? So um, Mrs. Merkel, uh, according to my sources, is embarrassed enough by the way in which foreign policy has been asserted against Russia by Maast. And the running's been amplified in the German press by the Spiegel and Die Zeit, and then amplified by the usual suspects, the crapulous Guardian in London, and uh, well, won't add any adjectives to the quality of the journalism that is emitted by the New York Times the Washington Post and the Toronto Globe and Mail. All our listeners know uh, what they're worth, especially on Russian issues. So we come back, Michael, to the point with which you began. What's the evidence of a crime here? 
Uh, we, we don't need to speculate as to what might have happened. We need to know if the German government's position, including Merkel's position, is that let's see what the evidence of a crime here is. Let's see what the Russians are prepared to do to investigate that crime. If that's where we start, then here's where we finish. This has nothing to do with Nord Stream 2. The completion, a few kilometers out to sea, of the second line that will deliver much cheaper gas to Germany than the United States uh, can deliver. Okay, so uh, it's in the US interest, it has been so for years now, to block Nord Stream 2 on the ground that Germany would be, according to Mr. Pompeo, um, more dependent on Russian gas. Actually, Germany doesn't want to be dependent on American gas, not least of all because it's more expensive. Nor does Germany wish to be dependent on such countries as the Ukraine, Poland, uh, Sweden for that matter, having a chokehold on their supply of energy. So from a German point of view, having Russian gas is energy freedom and energy diversification at a lower cost. Merkel's position has been, I will resist these calls for sanctioning Russia over the Navalny case for two reasons. One, where's the evidence of a crime? Two, uh, if there's evidence of a crime on the German side, let's see what the, the Russians do with that evidence. Why has Germany, Mass in particular, uh, the PR people at the Charité Clinic in Berlin, the Warfare Lab in Munich, and the OPCW, which is based in the Netherlands, why have they refused to hand over their evidence to the Russians? You can't ask the Russians to run an investigation of a crime if you won't provide them with the evidence. Okay, Mrs. Merkel's position has been, let the Russians make a transparent investigation of a crime with the evidence we say, or her subordinates say, they've got. Second, we will not sanction Nord Stream 2 just because a bunch of no hoping, wannabe, deadbeat politicians, Mrs. Kramp, Karabar, Mr. Musk, and a few others, insist we should. They're running a political campaign to put gas in their dead political campaigns. Why should Germany suffer for, for lack of gas with the sanctions? So she said they're not connected. The American press, the English press, the Spiegel and the Zeit in Germany have said otherwise. That's a political fight. Now, Here's Alexei Navalny popping up in his hospital bed yesterday saying, I can breathe, I'm healthy, look at me, folks, and I'm going back to Russia to continue my good works. In Russia, Alexei Navalny is a very minor figure politically. He cannot do much better than about 2% public opinion, uh, public support as a political leader. He's not the prime critic of Mr. Putin. He's not a political threat. There was no motive for Mr. Putin to give him this amount of prov uh, prominence. He managed his organization with all this publicity, managed uh, uh, on the day when there were municipal and regional elections to win two city council seats in Tomsk and uh, five city council seats in Novosibirsk and nothing more. That doesn't mean that most Russians don't agree with the anti-corruption.
corruption line that he, uh, Alexei Navalny and his video clips have effectively presented. No question, we, we, we all agree with those analyses and we appreciate Navalny's investigations, but he's not a political contender in Russia. When he goes home, he will be as obscure as he was. On the other hand, if he's been lying, if he had a, a metabolic disorder poisoning, not a Novichok poisoning, he's dead in Russia politically for having been party to a pack of lies constructed by his staff and Ms. Pevchik, who belongs to a group of Russian exiles, uh, Chichvakin, uh, Khodorkovsky, and, uh, and others, who are very closely associated with the British intelligence services campaign to change regime in Moscow. That's a killer well, in I... Russian domestic terms. That was John Helmer, a Western journalist serving out of his own bureau independent in Moscow. To read more of his work, go to the website johnhelmer.net. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. To speak to the wider antipathies toward Russia, I got hold of Stefan Goitsch, PhD. He is a researcher at the Institute of European Studies in Belgrade. He focuses on European studies, especially the politics in Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and Russian and post-Soviet politics and international relations. His field of expertise is in political science, diplomacy, history, and geopolitics. I first got him to talk about Belarus and speculate about foreign motives behind the current uprisings. Well, to be honest, there's no simple answer to this question because uh, I think uh, there is a bit of both. Uh, Lukashenko has been in power for the last 26 years and when he came to power he was uh, a uh, young politician, a refreshment, somebody who was offering uh, stability uh, and uh, economic uh, development. Uh, uh, to say that he's a, uh, a dictator or authoritarian leader would not be an understatement, but he's an authoritarian leader of an older generation. Uh, Today, uh, we have much more sophisticated uh, totalitarian regimes, especially when we talk about the Western Hemisphere. Everybody knows what is not to be said uh, in the West and what can get you sacked of job or uh, what can get you in serious trouble uh, with uh, basically living in a society. People can be really uh, easily ostracized, especially now with the whole um, um, election campaign of 2020 uh, with the uh, rise of uh, uh, what Douglas Murray likes to call wokeness and, 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 and madness of crowds or what uh, Lincoln would call uh, mob law. Uh, and um, emotions are now dictating, I would say, uh, the West and the uh, totalitarian um, regimes of the West are more uh, of a postmodern type. They are closer to maybe um, dystopias uh, such as uh, the Brave New World of Aldous Huxley, uh, whereas uh, Lukashenko's regime is a post-Soviet, 
um, I don't know how, how to even even call it. Uh, it, is, it, it used to be a post-Soviet paradise, uh, and, and it, it was really good for, I would say, the, the boomer generation of, uh, of Belarusians. And I think that even today, uh, most of his, uh, of his supporters come from that generation. But the very uh, economic developments that, uh, that was low, but, but still existed uh, and, and was very stable in Belarus actually uh, bore a new generation, uh, which is uh, completely, um, it grew up with different, uh, with different um, norms of life, with different uh, technology uh, uh, surrounding them. And, uh, and the society uh, at large uh, became uh, different and, and globalized. So they could, um, unlike maybe their parents, see across the fence uh, and compare. Uh, so uh, I do believe that uh, what, uh, what we have uh, was uh, at the beginning a general, uh, the general uprising was, was very, very natural. Uh, but uh, what I see now uh, is meddling of uh, foreign powers, especially uh, NATO uh, in, uh, in different forms uh, and, and, and ways. And um, what really happened there, I mean, you really have to know the specifics of, of, of Belarus. Belarusians are essentially Russians. Maybe this is not politically correct to say, but they speak the same language, they look the same, they, uh, their culture is the same. Uh, and it is, uh, if, I mean, I, I must openly say an artificial, uh, artificially created nation. So you have a state, now let's create a nation. And I think that the, the biggest problem of Lukashenko's regime was that he was actually, during the last 26 years, uh, uh, building uh, the national myth. Uh, and uh, it was obvious for me that, that what happened uh, now uh, was, going to, what was going to happen uh, sooner or later. I think that the only... Uh, plausible uh, outcome for stability of, of Belarus was uh, gradual unification with Russia. And I think that even today, this is the only uh, path uh, for, for peace and the only way to avoid the civil war, which is probably the worst case scenario that can uh, come out of all of this. Uh, so what happened was that uh, uh, during the first protest, a small uh, minority, uh, but a a small uh, minority of dedicated activists came out with, uh, with a white, red, white flag. Uh, this flag is very problematic because uh, it is connected to the collaborationist period where uh, the uh, local pro-Nazi uh, elite supported by the Nazi occupiers, by the Germans during World War II, uh, were using this flag. Uh, and the fact is that most of the protesters are, of course, not supporting this. Uh, uh, this they are just uh, genuinely uh, fed up with, uh, with Lukashenko sitting on, on power forever. So, uh, but what happened was that Lukashenko was, uh, by building this um, na national identity, this uh, new created, as uh, um, you know, Hobsbawm or Benedict Anderson would, would say, you know, these, these created, uh, uh, invented uh, identity and traditions, uh, he was actually feeding uh, the small minority that is very radically anti-Russian, which I would say is not exceeding five or maximum 10% of the population. Uh, but the thing is that uh, since all the Russian alternatives, the, grouse, the grassroots Russian alternatives were either suffocated by the regime or 
were incorporated to praise Lukashenko's uh, personal power. Uh, because of that fact, uh, the small minority of extremists uh, gave the visual identity of the whole protest. And I think this is a big problem. Yeah, I mean, they said in the elections that, uh, uh, well, we're not sure whether or not there was fraud, but like 80% is going to be Lukashenko. So I mean, even if it's only, you know, maybe it was 60%, but that Lukashenko would still be in power. But that 10% that were opposed, uh, with the right tools and resources, they could be a formidable force, right? And so I guess I'm just wondering, is it, uh, is it possible that that could escalate to the point of, uh, I don't know, becoming another Ukraine, for example, or, uh, or is it going to be well, contained? I think that uh, the, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, so I can't claim, I don't have any evidence, uh, but uh, I am really very skeptical about uh, the election process itself, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, and uh, I do believe that uh, people were, uh, at the first stage, genuinely, uh, they, they felt disrespected. Uh, and, and, and also Lukashenko, uh, he was trying to appease the West by uh, just weeks before uh, the elections, he was claiming how Russia is uh, trying to uh, subvert him, how they're sending uh, um, private uh, military uh, company, companies to, um, to, to, to topple the regime and, and, and things like that only to, uh, to change his story for 180 degrees once uh, something hit the fan. Uh, so uh, so uh, what, uh, what we are seeing now is on one side, his personal uh, wish to stay in power. On the other side, uh, a large proportion, we can't say what is the, the ratio, but, but uh, undoubtedly, the large proportion of population uh, that, that wants him out of the office. And you have Russia, uh, where also many people support the protesters. Uh, they, they support their cause. So basically, Russia, by, uh, by supporting Lukashenko, is also jeopardizing, what Russian government is jeopardizing their own uh, electoral basis. So, uh, and, and this is happening in a situation when only three weeks ago, Lukashenko was accusing them of, uh, of crazy things. So, uh, they are a bit reluctant, uh, but what I'm sure of is that Russia will not allow another Ukraine to happen, and uh, it will not allow Belarus uh, to uh, become uh, controlled in one way or another by NATO. And I think that is the red line, and I think that least even the people in, uh, in Brussels understand that. Uh, so, uh, well, with all honesty, and, and I said this even on, on, on Belarusian programs, and I know it's, it's definitely not politically correct to say that there, uh, but now they're listening because, uh, because the country is in, 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 uh, in, in real crisis. Uh, I think that the only solution is uh, for Belarus to, uh, to join Russia to get huge investments uh, that will uh, appease uh, the people. Uh, and also uh, to have a transition of power where uh, Lukashenko would uh, go to a dignifying uh, pension and be remembered uh, as a unifier of, of, of the same people, basically, as I said in the beginning, that, that it's Russians for, uh, on both sides of the, of the, of the border, uh, instead of being uh, remembered as a brutal dictator and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, so I think that, that, that these are... 
the, these are the starting positions of, uh, of, of, of various uh, uh, parties. And I think that uh, time is the resource that uh, no one really uh, has, uh, except for maybe uh, somebody on the side, and I would say in, uh, in the West, uh, who would want to destabilize uh, and actually to, to uh, make this crisis uh, even even worse than it is. Yeah, um, just uh, there's uh, been a lot of uh, tension recently between the Russians and Belarus. Uh, and, and there was uh, ultimately, I mean, Mr. Lushenko was had talks with Pompeo and that was sort of presented as a kind of a, uh, I don't know, getting with the times, uh, having, basically helping to get a better deal with Russian uh, things. And there was also the whole issue of uh, the, the, the Wagnerian activists who released in exchange for the, uh, the opposition, his opposition opponent in Russia. Um, could you just maybe talk uh, just briefly uh, if, what, what really were uh, the, the, the difficulties between the Russians and the Belarusians. Like, why why did Belarus take that course, and and are they now being on on the heels of becoming amended? Well, um, essentially, I think Lukashenko thought he was more important than that he really is, and that his uh, international weight is uh, is uh, high above uh, the the reality. He was actually trying, in my, in my opinion, to 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 become sort of a new Tito. Um, I'm talking about the dictator of Yugoslavia during the Cold War, who was uh, who was milking uh, both cows, you know, West and and the East, and and who was uh, really getting good deals for him personally and for the country uh, during the Cold War. Uh, but uh, this is a completely different uh, time and period in, in human history, uh, and and also uh, Lukashenko did not realize one simple fact. And that is that uh, no matter what he do, he does, he will never be accepted as uh, one of one of uh, their own uh, within the West, because his uh, reputation was already uh, bad uh, in in the Western uh, media and uh, in the Western societies. Uh, you know, the last dictator of Europe, although the last dictator of Europe was Milo Djukanovic in Montenegro, and he's actually was actually. Uh, he lost finally power after 30 years. Uh, that's another uh, topic that is very interesting. Uh, and it's developed, it was developing uh, parallelly to that of, uh, of Belarus. Uh, but the re reaction of the, of the NATO alliance was, was quite different uh, because of geopolitics, not because of uh, human rights principles and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, I think that he overplayed his role uh, he thought that he could, uh, uh, you know, get get all the spoils, and uh, that the West will uh, treat him with respect because he will, uh, um, let's say, he will be a buffer zone between Russia and them. Uh, and at the same time, uh, he was uh, bargaining with Russia and blackmailing them constantly that uh, he can go completely to the Western side. Uh, so he was doing this for uh, for years and years. And uh, he thought that uh, this could continue uh, indefinitely. And uh, in the situation of, uh, I would say, um, I don't know how to call what is, hap what is happening now in the world. Is this a, a world, a hybrid world war? 
or or what are we uh, you know experiencing? I, I really can't say, and I think that uh, only uh, you know after 10, 15, or even more years, uh, we will uh, really maybe be able to assess the times that we are living right now. Uh, so. Uh, one way or another, Lukashenko, uh, uh, he overestimated his powers and uh, what, what happened was inevitable. And I think that uh, the only thing he can hope for is uh, damage control. And st he still has the power to do that. He still has the power to do, uh, to do good things, uh, both for his people uh, and uh, uh, and and for peace in Europe, uh, if he uh, is, if he can um, be talked uh, not to be so uh, um, greedy for power, essentially, uh, because there, I don't think there is going back to pre-electoral Belarus one way or another, uh, but it can go uh, in in direction of unification and uh, and I think that would be a peaceful solution or it can go into the direction of Ukraine uh, which I still think is a less likely option uh, but uh, nevertheless it exists and that would be the worst case scenario. was wondering if you could also comment uh on uh, another factor through all of this, and that's the uh, the NATO exercises uh, over the Barents Sea in the Arctic. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. the Baltic yeah, this is this is all connected. I mean, NATO uh, is trying to consolidate a front from the Baltic Sea and actually from uh, from the from the far north, from the from the North Pole uh, to the Mediterranean, meaning Adriatic uh, and the Black Sea, and. Uh, this is actually an old plan of uh, Marshal Pilsudski, uh, the Polish Marshal, from, it was in 1919. Uh, he suggested that the Euro European countries should make, should make a sanitary cordon to isolate Russia from, from the world, from the ports, from, uh, from, from the seas. Uh, and actually, uh, in 2016, uh, then President of Croatia, Kolinda Grabar-Kitarovic, she, she suggested that uh, the that so-called Three Seas Initiative uh, which is essentially just a recycled, uh, uh, you know, uh, intermarium, as it was called, uh, initiative of, of, of Pilsudski 100 years before her. Uh, and knowing that she used to work in, uh, in, in NATO headquarters, uh, I mean, she was a PR, so she, she actually had a very high position in NATO. I can't remember the exact uh, position, sorry, sorry about that. Uh, and uh, and from, from there she came and became the president of Croatia. So, so uh, the exercises uh, in the Baltics uh, and, and even uh, further to the north, uh, the um, isolation of, of Serbs, I would say, not even of Serbia as a country. I think that NATO has a problem with the, more with the people than with, uh, with, with actual entities. Uh, because the Serbs don't live only in Republic of Serbia. Serbs are a majority in Montenegro, half of Bosnia and Herzegovina are, 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 are ethnic Serbs. Um, also Macedonia, Kosovo and Metohia. So uh, this is a problem because uh, Serbs were a problem for the Nazis uh, in, in World War II and the map was more or less the same. Uh, the Nazis used to call this uh, the sector Southeast and also for NATO it's called sector Southeast. So, uh, so the problem is the same, you know, all the surrounding countries are on board 
uh, against Russia, but uh, Serbs are not. Uh, and again, uh, you have, uh, even if the elites are like that, you have the hostile uh, population, uh, which is uh, considered from NATO's perspective to be, uh, you know, in, in the backyard of the, of the front, which is always a problem. Uh, so, uh, so this also explains why nobody uh, um, congratulated uh, the um, change, uh, changing of the government uh, uh, in Montenegro from the region. Interestingly enough, U.S. ambassador and uh, British ambassador did congratulate. Uh, but I also think this is due to uh, what I like to call uh, a silent civil war within the West. You know, both the United Kingdom and the United States are divided societies. Uh, UK because of Brexit and, uh, and the US because of uh, the whole uh, uh, culture wars and, uh, and BLM and Antifa and uh, white uh, militias that are also not really peaceful. Uh, and, uh, you know, because of this, 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 these rising tensions that are, uh, that are being heated more and more uh, and because of what, what I like to call the end of consensus uh, within the society, you know, Americans really uh, can't say anymore what, what they are, what does it mean to be an American? Uh, because uh, <clears throat> these are completely different concepts for if you ask uh, uh, different people. Um, and this dissolution of, uh, of, of unity started probably from, from, from the 60s, from the times of the Vietnam War and, uh, and the, the peace movement and so on. Uh, but uh, but now it is culminating, and uh, and now, in my opinion, there is no uh, there is no space for, for for even for conversation, for rational conversation, because uh, emotions are so high. And uh, also, I think this uh, translates to the international arena, where uh, uh, depending on which ideological clan different diplomats belong to you will have this or that agenda uh, being promoted. I'm sure there is a civil war in the American embassy here in Belgrade. I mean, that, uh, that they are pro-Trump and, uh, and, 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 you know, fiercely anti-Trump people uh, uh, working in the same uh, environment. And this is why I think that, uh, and also, uh, you know, they, they do think uh, uh, forward. So, so they did congratulate the new, the new government uh, in order uh, to have also a stake uh, in, in power uh, for the future period because uh, Milo Djukanovic became a liability. Uh, his regime was, uh, was too much um, connected to, to crime and, and it was a public knowledge. Um, I can say um, the same about Serbia. Uh, now, but uh, <laughs> it's probably not the safest thing to do. But I, but I'm still going. I'm still going to, to say it. And um, these regimes were connected, of course. And I think there is a big um, neurosis, let's say, uh, in the region, especially among among the NATO pro-NATO uh, uh, puppet regimes. Uh, and this is not only the former Yugoslav states. I mean, in Bulgaria, you have protests for the last three months against the prime minister and it's interesting there because uh, the president is also against the prime minister because the president is not corrupt and he can be uh, against the prime minister who is an epitome of criminal. Uh, he used to be a bodyguard of the last uh, communist dictator of Bulgaria, Todor Zhivkov, and was notorious for connections with the, with the underground 
mm. uh, during the 90s and even his style is 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 like uh i mean it's it's so stereotypical as uh, you expect to see Dolph Lundgren and and uh, you know other other uh people from um, from the uh b category hollywood movies about about eastern europe so so do you think that to overall that these like the the, the position of russia is uh you know weaker or is it strengthening because of all of this uh this behavior? i think i think russia is in a very delicate position i mean it's being constantly being accused of being aggressive whereas i think it's it's being uh on the defensive from the beginning uh even the crimea crimea was absolutely uh they had no choice because uh uh, this is what people don't know in the West. The, the Russian uh, Black Sea Fleet, a navy, uh, military navy, uh, was uh, in, was stationed permanently in Crimea, and the new government threatened to, to uh, and they had a you know 50 years contract to be there, uh, in spite of the fact that after the fall of the Soviet Union. So they said, okay, this is Ukraine, but uh, but this is our fleet, and uh, they had a contract. And uh, the new government uh, was jeopardizing that. So they had to physically uh, take Crimea. Otherwise, they would have NATO literally in the suburbs of Moscow. And the same things is, is happening in the, ba the Baltic state. At the same, with the Baltic states. At the same time, they have uh, the United States. I mean, Trump is not particularly anti-Russian. Uh, he uh, is uh, uh, rightfully, in my opinion, afraid of, uh, of China becoming the, the main uh, superpower. Uh, and already it is the main industrial power of the, of, of the world. Uh, and uh, also uh, it is the first country to recover from COVID, whatever COVID is. Uh, and I don't want to go into that because I don't know. I just see things are not really normal and they don't fit the narrative. But uh, in order to claim something, you have to have proof. So I don't want to be Alex Jones and, and claim something without, without proof. Uh, so I'm just saying that the, 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 there's something really weird going on with this uh, thing. And um, China uh, is, uh, is basically becoming a superpower. It has great relations with Russia, but I think that it benefits more from this relation than Russia does. And Russia doesn't have the luxury to, to, confront, to confront China. So I think they partially pretend to be best friends. Uh, so Russia is pretty alone, uh, I would say, and pretty uh, vulnerable, but never underestimated. Uh, because uh, Russia showed in Syria what it is capable of. Uh, it, it was the power that aligned, uh, annihilated uh, ISIS and Jabhat Nusra and other uh, extremist uh, uh, groups uh, and um, I think uh, it, 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 sh it is showing the, the claws when it needs to uh, uh, but if the fact is that I think that they are really not interested in any kind of uh, conflict because uh, they have uh, already so many problems of their own that, that, that uh, dealing with, uh, uh, with, with so many numerous uh, uh, conflicts are, is, is not in, in, in their interest. So I think that Russia is trying to balance uh, between China and the West. Uh, it, it was hardly trying to make uh, uh, economic relations with Germany, especially through the 
North uh, Stream Pipeline project. But then you have this whole affair with uh, Navalny, Germany claiming that he was poisoned, uh, Russia claiming he was not. It's not really even important because everybody's going to believe in the narrative they already uh, had in their minds before anything happened. Uh, the same thing was with Skripal and others. Uh, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The truth, this is the, the, the thing. Uh, that really truth doesn't even matter. The facts don't matter anymore because we live in time, times where uh, uh, purely emotions are determining our, uh, our worldview. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, this is the difficult, a very difficult time for Russia, but it still can be uh, pretty calm. Uh, although I think that uh, the, the immediate uh, crisis management they, ha they have to deal with is Belarus. Uh, and if Belarus, one way or another, becomes uh, uh, under domination of NATO, that will be an absolute catastrophe for Russia. We just spoke with Belgrade-based academic Stefan Goich. That's the end of our program. Please join us again next week where we will start a multi-episode look at the COVID-19 virus. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.